it's thinking through and having that structured approach to make sure that you are covering all bases when you are making changes or you're trying to implement new processes to be more efficient. It's just having that awareness that you could use a structured approach that might make your change or your improvement a bit more successful. Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hey Holly, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a real honour to to join you today. And oh. firstly, I thought I'd ask how you are. Because <laughs> oh. you've asked how I am, so how are you? Thank you. Do you know, I'll be honest, this week's been rough. <laughs> like It's been really, really busy, but it's because I'm gearing up for half term. And you know that week, you're trying to clear your email and you clear it. And then you get another 50 and people keep, you know, when the phone rings and you think, do, do I pick it up? No, do I? And then you pick it up and then you think, oh... <laughs> But it's Friday and, yep, yeah, I'm all good now. Oh, good. I actually learned a tip from someone a few weeks ago who, when they're going on annual leave, they add an extra day before they go. So they put their yeah. out of office on day before they actually break up and that sometimes helps with switching yeah. up and getting everything done. That last minute dash. So our paths virtually crossed on Twitter. Holly shares, you share just always excellent I don't know, you just use social media, in my view, really well. So I can see a little bit of what you're up to, what you're reading, what you're listening to, a few inspirational quotes. And for ages, I was like, oh, should I ask her? Should I ask her? Will she say no? And then I just one day was feeling really brave and just asked you and you said yes. So could you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do for work today? Yeah, okay. So my job title is Head of Primary Care. I work for a clinical commissioning group in Herefordshire and Worcestershire. And I've been working for the the CCG for seven years. But I actually started the NHS when I was 16. I joined my local hospital as a catering assistant while I was in year 11. So I was just doing my GCSEs. And I guess here I am almost 18 years later. still working in the NHS. I have always worked in the NHS ever since I was 16. And I even worked when I was doing my A-levels. I worked around my sort of studies. And then in 2007, I finished my A-levels and I originally had this idea that I wanted to be a police officer. So I moved down to Hampshire because they were recruiting police officers at the time, only force that were doing it. And 
applied about to start the training and I thought mm, I'm not sure this is for me I really miss working in the hospital it only been like a month since I hadn't worked in the hospital so instead of coming home and sort of saying to my parents oh you know I don't want to be a police officer I should have listened to you I just decided to follow my heart and I joined a local hospital as a kitchen porter, literally operating a massive industrial dishwasher, washing pots and pans and washing up the sort of the restaurant and the patient's cutlery for a couple of months and quickly started working in other parts of the hospital, in the restaurant, on the wards. And that really sort of started my career properly, I guess, after doing my uh, GCSEs and A-levels. I really enjoyed working in the hospital, but I really wanted to go to university. But for me, just going to university full time wasn't an option. I was lived, lived away from home. I had a mortgage at the time. And so I didn't want to go home again, back to my parents and say, you know, I should listen to you. So I tried to look to see how I could go to university, but also carry on working at the same time. And I was the first person in my family to go to university. So I had sort of, my family were kind of, you know, a bit sceptic as to what what are you going to get from going to university? What value is it going to add for you? But I was really determined. So I combined working at the hospital and studying in the evenings at university to do my undergraduate degree. And then I quickly got various roles in the hospital as uh, in administration, then as a facilities team leader. I worked in some community hospitals down in um, West Sussex. And then I went back to the hospital. I started as a kitchen porter at to become facilities manager, finished my undergraduate degree, started my master's degree in strategic quality management. And then in 2012, we moved back up to Worcestershire and I joined Birmingham Children's Hospital as a facilities manager there. Worked there for about 18 months and then after finishing my master's degree I thought I spent 10 years in facilities management and I don't know anything about the rest of the NHS. It's such a operational heads down if it's 24-7 operation so if something stops working if the you know the ovens stop or the fridges or the security system patients still have to be looked after so it was a very intense role and you know that 10 years sort of went by really quickly so yeah in 2014 I thought what else can I do with the rest of my career I'm still in my 20s at the time and I've really enjoyed working in facilities but from a career perspective I was really keen to understand where my future sort of lay and what opportunities I could have. So that's why I ended up at the CCG. I applied for loads of jobs, didn't get shortlisted because I think people misunderestimate the skills of a facilities manager. And as I said previously, it's a 24-7 operation. You have to do on call. You have to, it's very intense. And so I think people misunderestimated the, the skills I probably had from, from my experience. Yeah, and I, and I got this job at the, the Clinical Commissioning Group in 2014. And I've been here ever since in a variety of roles. And obviously, I'm head of primary care at the moment. I got this job when I was eight months pregnant. I oh, wasn't going to apply for the job. I was actually doing GP Forward View projects at the time. I was the lead for that. And yeah, the job came up as head of primary care. I was pregnant. I was thinking, oh, this is my dream job, but I'm going on maternity leave. And, and it was only really the support and encouragement from my actual team that I still work with now 
saying, we want you to go for this job. We want you to be our manager, our, my clinical colleagues as well, really encouraging me and the senior team at the CCG really encouraging me to, to apply for the job. So I remember being very heavily pregnant, going to the interview, kind of thinking, well, if I don't get it and somebody else, if I don't apply and somebody else gets the job and I know I could do it, I'd be really annoyed with myself. So I just thought, you know, I'll give it my best shot and, and yeah, got the job and started it before I went on maternity leave and then came back sort of all guns blazing in 2018, early 19, just to, yeah, to do my job. And that's what I've been doing since then. How long a maternity leave did you take? I was off for nine months. So my little boy was literally, yeah, nine months old when I came back to the CCG. I think it was actually, I did sort of keep in touch days throughout because I can't stay away, <laughs> can't switch off. But yeah, joined back uh, in 2019. Oh, that's so lovely to hear because I think a lot of people would have not applied. They would have assumed that because they're pregnant, they wouldn't get the job. So I think that's really, and I know quite a few people that have been on interviews and got the job and been pregnant and it, yeah, then gone off. So it's not as unusual as people may think, but it is a testament to your organisation because there are a lot of organisations where, you know, it would be a no, you know, like just one look before you'd even open your mouth, they'd be thinking, I needed somebody to start like six months ago. <laughs> like I need just somebody then and there. So so thinking about your career, where do you think it's heading? Where do you, what do you want to do now? I know you're happy where you are, but what are you open to in the future? Well, because I really love my job and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the things that, you know, I've been doing since, since 2019. I, you know, I really love my job. But actually an opportunity came up recently to a local opportunity to become a director of strategy and partnerships for the primary care networks. And again, sort of imposter syndrome shook. And I thought, I can't do that job. You know, I I really love my job and, you know, I'll never make it as a director. But actually, again, through the encouragement of my team, of my mentor, of my colleagues, I applied for the job and been through a rather long process of interviews and tests and everything. And I got offered the job yesterday. So I suppose when this podcast airs, I might be in the job. So so cool. Okay, so I did I did do my research and I've got loads of questions, but now all of the questions have just changed. <laughs> so and we do talk about imposter syndrome, and I think the reason why lots we talk about it a lot because it just comes up a lot. And even when I approached you, the first thing you said was like will I have anything interesting to say (laughs) and it's that feeling of imposter syndrome comes up I think even with the most confident of people but clearly you're very ambitious and I think so whilst you may have that feeling it doesn't stop you from wanting to progress so knowing what you know as you move into this new job what are going to be the tools that you adopt to kind of keep your head you know keep you focused and not kind of buckle under this self-imposed pressure a really good question I think that I have invested quite a lot in my own understanding myself understanding other people and I really value things like SDI and the strengths finder what are are you on the SDI I'm blue red on SDI 
and I'm I did StrengthsFinder a couple of years ago and I've invested probably a little bit more time in StrengthsFinder listening to the podcasts where they talk about each individual strength I've got strategic communication adaptability achiever and responsibility in my top five okay okay so I think yeah really understanding your your strengths and your what you bring and what value you add and I think I'll be looking for where I can work collectively with people to learn from them where I'm necessarily not I need to develop certain skills where I'm weaker in certain areas so I think you know working with people alongside people I think is going to be my my approach and also listening to people because I think you know there is a lot of stress in our in, in every system particularly in, in primary care at the moment with with what's been happening recently so I think you know having the ability to listen to people and listen to their ideas and then hopefully help them make those ideas a reality where they're obviously achievable um, I think will be my my approach but yeah I think my having my mentor has really helped me with the whole imposter syndrome and uh, there's a book uh, Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg that I read a couple of years ago and I've recommended it to people that I've spoken to who have gone through similar experiences to me I always reflect on I think there's a there's a page in the book that talks about feeling like a fraud and they're going to find you out because you're not as good as <laughs> as you as you as you as they think you are I love that I think lots of people do so I'm a core strengths facilitator lots of people do these tools and I've done strengths finders and Myers Briggs and then they just move on, you know, like, so it's all exciting, really interesting in that moment. And then life and work just takes over and people forget. So I think it's really nice that you're reminding us all, don't forget that, keep going back and studying it because it really does help you objectively look at yourself and the context that you work within. And I think imposter syndrome for me comes when I just think it's all about me, <laughs> like all of the time. And it just isn't. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you think? So when you're thinking about your approach, so you're going to be working alongside people, what were the most important skills that you learn in your commissioning role? I think listening and trying to navigate the complexities of the system, I think are probably the two main skills and trying to communicate at different levels because things mean things to different people people have different ways of receiving changes or changes to services and understanding that I think is really is really helpful when you're in a commissioning role particularly where I've got a unique portfolio at the moment because I'm responsible for primary care commissioning but I also do transformation workforce primary care network development so you're, you're sort of on this very it's almost like a tightrope because you're you're balancing the commissioning responsibilities and where we're delegated through NHS England to deliver the contracts. But then you're also on the other side, working very, very closely with practices, with clinicians, with our workforce, supporting them to deliver the contracts and to deliver transformation that makes their working lives better, to make outcomes for patients better. So it is almost like a tightrope of balancing the two yeah in my role as a PCN manager in some of my contracts so I communicate with the head of primary care and their team and in the past there was one lady called Lucy who was absolutely 
amazing. And I think what made her amazing is she was really clear when she was communicating via email because not everything can be done in a meeting. Otherwise, that meeting would be really overwhelming. So she was really good. She was really good at giving us a heads up like, I know you're not going to like this, but we've kind of got to do it. She was really good at softening the blows. She was really good at negotiating and as facilitative as everybody wants to be, sometimes you just have to say, this is what you're doing, whether you like it or not really. You know, like we can have conversations with the LMC and all of this stuff. That's just a delay. You know, like you're just delaying it. We are going to have to do it. And she was really good at kindly, but also very decisively saying, like, enough now. <laughs> like, we just all have to crack on. She was really, really good. And the team that I work with now are really good. And I sometimes, I, when their emails come down, I really feel for them. I think, oh, Natalie, I can imagine how difficult this was to comprise. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about compromise, I think. So finding where we agree and have to agree to disagree on other things. Is that stressful? It can be sometimes, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's a very challenging role because things are always changing, as you, you know, as you probably experience as well. You know, the goalposts change quite quite frequently, so it can be quite stressful, yeah. And how do you manage that stress? How does your, when thinking about your strengths finders and your uh, SDI, how does your behaviour change when you're under stress? I think my responsibility strength comes out quite a lot because I get I stress myself out by overthinking that I've promised to do something, for example, and then my responsibility keeps me up in the night because I'm thinking, oh my God, I haven't <laughs> done what I said I was going to do. But I do think that my career in facilities has really contributed to some of my resilience, I guess, for want of a better word because I had quite a difficult portfolio working in facilities such as managing car parking and that's probably one of the most difficult roles I've ever done and really challenging really stressful because I'm a results person I like to deliver I like to see things through I like to see outcomes for people for patients and that was one of those very challenging roles where no nobody would ever be happy with the, the solution that you come up with and I remember the chief executive of the trust that I that I worked at when I did that role said to me uh, in a meeting one day, Holly, if you can manage car parking, you can manage anything. And I think that when I have sort of challenging and stressful situations, I always recall how I dealt with some of those challenges when I managed car parking because it is very contentious and emotive and Quite similar to working in primary care, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I always say to people, if you can work in primary care, you can do anything. So going back to that, so people, I work a lot with new PCN managers and we talk a lot about navigating practices with confidence. And you've just said something really key, which we talk about all the time, is no one will ever always be happy. When you're working with multiple organisations, there will always be one practice one person and sometimes that one person one practice may have the loudest voice that is not happy with the decision and the rational side you'll say well we just have to go with the consensus if you know like if seven out of the eight are happy then that's a win but it doesn't feel like that sometimes in reality and you're still thinking how can I make it work but I can't make it work it can be very stressful so how do you make peace with not everybody's going to be happy all of the time. 
think it's back to that tightrope, isn't it? It's a real challenge. And I have found over the years working with some clinicians who, you know, do have the loudest voice and do potentially actually have a reason behind why they might not agree to something. And I think it's really important to try and understand if you can the root cause of why why they might be cautious or why what's behind their thinking as to why they might not potentially agree with something or be so opposed to something I think sometimes it's really helpful to you know to find the, the root cause and we've done a lot of work well I personally done that work with our LMC I have a really good relationship with them and often they often sort of using them as a council to understand you know what and navigate why we might have particular challenges with certain things I think is, is always really helpful because they always see things from a slightly different perspective and yeah it's that's quite a helpful source to to have in as part of your you know your immediate yeah. team in your current job how much thinking time do you have to implement the deliverables that you need to achieve so do you have just white space in your diary to think okay well we need to liaise with the LMC on this I need to I can contact Tara to get her thoughts on this. How much time do you you have? Very little. I do most of my thinking time when I'm with my horses at six o'clock in the morning that I do before nursery run, work. I listen to podcasts and that often gives me some inspiration and some time to think about how we're going to implement things. And I often have ideas at the very very random times of the day or night sometimes my husband once bought me for Christmas a like a notepad that says it says something like things that I wake up in the middle of the night and remember book (laughs) (laughs) and that is often me or making notes in my phone just of random you know random ideas that I have or things I need to do so yeah I think it's quite an intense Working in sort of the role that I do in, in commissioning and all you know, transformation and all the other sort of areas that I cover, it is very intense and like a typical day, it is a, we do have a lot of meetings, particularly with the integrated care system so on the horizon. We have a lot of meetings with partners, with clinicians, like clinical directors or general, you know, our workforce, we engage with them a lot. So most of my day is is spent in in either meetings or working on things that need to be projects that need to be done so the thinking space has to come outside of that are you in control of your diary yes yeah yeah just just yeah I am in control of my diary I do try and block out some time when I need to maybe engage with the team on something and we do block out you know an hour to collectively look at something and beforehand we'll send around data to look at or you know yeah information before and so when we go to the meeting we are we're all prepared to have that thinking time and my manager and one thing we miss from all being in the office and one thing we've struggled with over the period of working at home is that my my manager has this whiteboard in her office and we could often be found if we needed to tackle something quite complex we would block out an hour we do our research beforehand go in our office and use our whiteboard as like the you know ideas generation and time for for making up a plan but obviously we don't have that anymore so working virtually we've tried to look at ways to keep up with that sort of thinking time but we and we've started to use 
Jamboard. So, yeah. and I can I can see behind you, you've got some post-it, post-it yeah. notes, but. I've got, yeah, I've got two whiteboards, but yeah, we use Google Jamboard. Yeah, that's really handy. Yeah. Yes, that's been really helpful for, yeah. for And just going back to things then, if you maybe run out of time in that meeting, going back to the Jamboard, you can move things around or add ideas on. And we've got like a, um, a, t- a virtual team space on Teams where, the, the, the link is live to you know add in ideas when you get them so that's quite helpful oh, yeah that's a good idea so I think the reason why I ask about the diary is that when you think of a couple of years ago you we, you wouldn't have had as many meetings because having online meetings would have been like no you can't do it you know like it would have been like you're crazy but now it's like back to back I don't think there are any pros in having back-to-back meetings but you can communicate with more people more frequently but there comes a point when actually you do just need the time to get on and do the work. And it can be very hard to say no, especially in a position where you are, because everybody wants to speak with you. Everybody wants to get the OK. So there is a pressure to kind of say yes and come to the meeting. But some days it's not always productive. So I think that's why I asked that. And are there any diary management changes that you will try that you think need to be addressed when you go into your new job? You know, like you want to start the new job as you mean to go on. So is there anything that you would do differently around how you manage your time? Because it's going to be different, but also very similar. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think you're right. You know, before we would have meetings, for example, with NH England that were regional meetings. So you would spend time traveling to the meeting and you'd probably have more sort of thinking time when you're traveling in the car then what you you know what you get now it's very as you say it's very intense and back-to-back meetings but I do think I'm quite I'm quite good at ensuring and being very aware of my workload and where things will take up time I don't have a physical whiteboard because I work you know in in a number of locations but sort of in my mind I have what I need to do in the next month what I need to do in the next couple of months potentially what I need to do in the next 90 days and I know people I've spoken to asking for advice over the years they have you know whiteboards or journals that they are able to plan their their time accordingly and I think when you know you've got to make those big decisions you can sort of factor in the time you need to really think about the approach that you're going to take or the strategy that needs writing and the time that you need to engage with people to do that so I think there are some principles I've learned particularly over the last year and particularly heading into a, a new role which will be you know very different in a in one respect but equally will be challenging in terms of the amount of people I probably need to engage with and speak to but actually having time to do the doing is really important as well. Mm-hmm. What you're quite big on leadership development what for our NHS colleagues listening what program would you say yeah absolutely 100% if you get the opportunity to do x do it I think from a clinical leadership perspective I would definitely if if your listeners haven't done or haven't haven't had the opportunity to do next generation GP or if they're more senior clinicians I would really recommend a an emerging program called Phoenix GP which is targeted at mid-career GPs yeah and we've delivered both of those programmes in, in Herefordshire and Worcestershire, and we've had significant success. And clinicians come into myself, and I work really closely with a clinical workforce lead, who's sort of like my right-hand man. And people have come to us to you know thank us for 
putting on these programs, for supporting their development, for making them enjoy general practice again and helping them to move into new roles that they maybe didn't have the confidence to, to do prior to, to joining us on some of those programs. That's been that's made all the hard work really worthwhile because we do put a lot of effort into you know developing and designing those those programs. And I also have a keen interest in quality improvement. It's what I did my, my master's degree in. And even well since the inception of the GP Forward View, I worked closely with the Time for Care team. And I'd really recommend if you know for, for more general leaders to do the, the programs that are offered by Time for Care, some of the quality improvement tools and techniques. And I've recently done two courses online that I would really recommend. One is called Managing Large-Scale Change by NHS England. It's it's an online course that you can do in your own time. I think they have several intakes throughout the year. And for me, it was a really good refresher as we're entering another period of change to think about the approaches to managing change, think about how you engage with stakeholders, the tools and techniques you might use, and how you go about measuring the change that you are planning. And the other course that I'm halfway through at the moment is a Lean Fundamentals refresher, again, through the same platform on NHS England. And just to have a refresher of some of those QI tools that you you use probably every day without thinking to, you know, just refresh your your mind of the approaches and why we we do things in, in those structured ways. And the really good thing that I like about the Phoenix program is we we have a sort of theme of quality improvement running through that as well. So part of the evening is an interview with a senior leader, and then part of the interview is a skills development session for GPs on various QI skills that you could you can use in practice or across your your primary care network. And we did have some feedback from some people saying, you know, when will I ever have time to do process mapping, or when will I have time to do PDSA? And my argument is, I actually think you do it subconsciously anyway, but it's just have it's thinking through and having that structured approach to make sure that you are covering all bases when you are making changes or you're trying to implement new processes to be more efficient. It's just having that awareness that you could use a structured approach that might make your change or your improvement a bit more successful. So it is a pleasure to be bringing the Business of Healthcare podcast in partnership with DKMS UK. DKMS are a blood cancer charity on a mission to find a blood stem cell match for everyone who needs it. I am proud to share that I am an ambassador for DKMS UK and my particular interest in partnering with them is that as it stands, fewer than 3% of patients from a black or mixed ethnic background are on the stem cell blood registry. We need more people to sign up to the registry and more people to spread the message. So I hope you will join me in doing so. To sign up to the registry, please visit www.dkms.org.uk to get involved. So there was loads in there. So I am a development advisor on the Time for Care programme. So for anybody listening that works in the NHS, if you see the opportunity to work with the Time for Care team, you know, so I think it's like it's free. It's I know it's not free. But you don't have to personally pay for it. 
It is absolutely excellent. And people always say to me, I've got an MBA, I've got Prince too. What should I do? What should I do? And the best leadership training I have had is from the Time for Care faculty. And that was like five days. Uh, yeah, I did the, the faculty training as well, actually, in 2019. And it gave me a network of people yeah. in working in general practice, in primary care. You know, I've got sort of GP colleagues that are now friends as part of the of the faculty training. So and that's really helped me locally with connecting my colleagues locally with different areas and different networks who have done some really brilliant improvements and how we can learn from them. So I think doing the training not only improves yourself it improves your your leadership your performance in your team your awareness so yeah I definitely think it's a brilliant opportunity mm. if, if anybody gets the opportunity to do it and then you touched upon is the time factor so what, what I suppose one question I've got is because you've done quite a lot of training and now people will expect that from you so when you say look guys let's slow down let's process map this let's get google jambled they will be like okay but when you first go on a course and you learn these new skills and you're really keen and then you try to slow everybody down, it was like no one's interested. <laughs> so how did you slowly start to introduce this, these frameworks and methodologies with people that may, A, haven't done the training, B, don't see any value or benefit and just see it as a bit of a like, oh, you know, aren't you clever? <laughs> how did you slowly introduce that? It's a bit of a slog, I think. It, you, it's something you have to keep at. Years ago, I'm talking probably five, six years ago, I used to run innovation sessions for our practice managers in the locality that I worked in. And that was partly to help them understand the, the complexities in the sort of contracting side of things, but also to help them understand, at the time, the five-year forward view, the GP forward view, what that means for practices and I think that was a way of at that time not talking about the tools and techniques you can use but giving them the context in which we might need to use some of these tools and techniques and I think that made some practices and practice managers in particular really understand why it might be helpful to engage with some of these techniques and looking back now and thinking about how we've responded locally to the pandemic I definitely see the value from some of those practices that engaged early on with some of these initiatives that they've been able to adapt and accept some of the changes probably slightly more easier than practices who maybe didn't engage at the time and I think you know hopefully that will the benefits that other practices are seeing now hopefully that will encourage other practices to maybe engage when the opportunity arises again to to, to, to implement some of these tools and techniques. And when I've worked with particular initiatives, so I mentioned the GP Forward View, and locally we, we really benefited from the investment and the programmes that we delivered. I'm sure there's probably mixed views on that, you know, in other parts of the country. But when we engage in projects, we use the change model, but I didn't say, oh, we're going to use the change model and this is what we're doing. I started off by saying, right, what are we here for? Trying to find the shared purpose and then introducing things like, well, this is what the system's saying we need to do. This is how we're going to measure whether it's successful or not. And just using that approach, but not necessarily using the, the sort of management lingo that comes with yeah. it. Because what I have found with working, particularly with general practice and primary care networks is, if I went to a meeting and said, right, we're going to do some organisational <laughs> development, <laughs> 
yeah they were probably politely politely telling me where to go um but yeah so I think yeah yeah I think just subtly keeping at it framing it in different ways and I think that's where my communication strength comes in because I'm always thinking about how to make things more appealable to the people who I work with my colleagues and recognizing that it means different things to different people so some people want to know financial benefits some people want to know what what outcomes it's going to have for patients what it's going to mean to them and you know to make their working day better for example so I think it's yeah it is quite a challenge but I think you have to really think about how you pitch things with your audience love it so you use social media why do you use it why do you why are you on twitter Oh, that's a really good question, actually. I've had Twitter for probably since 2009, I think. I actually set my account up when I was a facilities manager at the Children's Hospital. And I set it up initially to showcase how brilliant facilities teams were in hospitals and in everywhere else and, you know, the NHS, because I was really passionate about showcasing how important the role is. And actually, recently, I saw children's hospital have done a facilities or the trust have done a facilities day where they've been sort of showcasing the work of facility staff so it was really nice to see that the other day and that's where I initially set it up was to showcase what my what my team were all about in the hospital and I made some really brilliant connections with other facilities managers through Twitter all those years ago and more recently I use it to connect with people to share things I think I'm really and I've learned this through Next Generation GP actually by helping facilitate the program locally that the principles of Next Gen are once you've once you've been through Next Gen pay it forward if you have a positive experience or you read a book or you read an article share it with people because if that means one other person will read it and feel inspired then you've hopefully made you know a difference to someone else's day so I try to be quite open with what I'm sharing to hopefully for that purpose but also to learn from other people as well so I've learned so much and connected with so many amazing people through Twitter that I feel like I know but I've never actually met in person (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I think that's been yeah the social aspect of it but from a professional perspective I guess has, has been my purpose of using Twitter. What piece of advice would you give to somebody wanting to build a management career in the NHS? I recently, and I'm probably not going to get the words exactly right, of a Twitter post I saw, but somebody recently tweeted about the misconception of NHS managers. If you're not a clinician by background, you don't you don't care as much as clinicians do for your for your patients. And I think it is a misconception because we are you know, we are here to support our colleagues, whether they be clinical or non-clinical. We, you know, we we hopefully, and hopefully my colleagues will see the difference that you know me and my team make locally. We we help people operationalize things, get things done, and leave them to care for their patients. So I think it is, yeah, it's 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 a difficult career, but I think you know I do what I do for my for, for, for the people that I work with and the people who care for our patients and I do feel that I'm making a, a very very small difference somewhere in the huge system that we're working in and I think if I if I didn't feel like that I probably you know wouldn't continue doing the jobs that I do. Holly you always are sharing lots of kind of books and resources can you share some of your favorite ones please? 
okay well I, I do read a lot sometimes I don't always finish the books that I that I read but I have every intention of finishing them but I just there's a couple of books that have really helped change my perspective of different situations that I've been in over the past year the first book that I've recently read is Radical Help by Hilary Cotton and she the book is brilliant just talking about the history of the health service the welfare state back to its inception and how her work has focused on revolutionising what we do across health and social care and her advice is about you know stopping reworking what we're doing and understand the nature of all these new challenges that surround us and it's really influential powerful book that I would definitely recommend people read and also the other book is No Hard Feelings by Liz and Molly. Oh I love that I can see it now. Yes I was going to say that it's really good about bringing sort of emotion into the workplace and being authentic and genuine it's a really original you know insightful book and in some places it really makes you smile and probably relate to situations that you've been in and their Twitter feed is full of illustrations and you know situations that I think we can all all relate to and then the final book that I've read recently is actually a free ebook I'm a member of the Health Foundation Q community and they shared it on one of the webinars they did recently which is it's called Systems Convening and it's by the authors are Wenger Trainer. And they talk about the role. Oh, you've got it. You're reading yeah, it at the moment. I've got yeah. It. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, I really like the way they describe the role of a systems convener. And I, I really related to this one sort of description. I, I think they say something like this role requires a deep, almost irresistible urge to make things work better in the landscape in which you find yourself in. And I can definitely relate to that to some of the workforce work that I've done. You know, we've worked really closely with our clinical colleagues and non-clinical colleagues on a range of workforce initiatives to improve retention in, in general practice across primary care networks. And I almost have this sort of burning desire to, you know, to make things better for people and to work alongside them to improve, improve their working day and their working lives, improve things with patients as well. So I think that that book is really definitely one to have a read of if you haven't already and I think that ties into one of the questions I asked around you know like it's not about making people happy but when you've got that dissenting voice when you can't make it feels like you can't make it work when you've got that passion you're like okay you might not have this but can you have that or would that how does this sound so when you that's the resilience piece when you've got a low energy day it can feel a bit like but when you're on it it kind of is like water off a duck's back. You're like, it's a challenge. And you're just like, I will get you to smile about this in like some way, shape or form. I haven't read the other radical book, but I've got that. And I think one is a silly practical tip, but where I read so many books now, I have gone digital. Like I love stationery, but I was finding, I was printing off so many, you know, like policy papers, had so many physical books. And you know, when you're like, oh where where's that and I can't walk around even though I have got an office but where I don't work from home it's like when I'm at home the office I want is in the office when I'm in the office the the book I want is at home so I've gone digital so I've got it all on there and you know when you need to search something now it is all there so yeah there's loads of scribbles on that systems convening book it's really really good 
So that's just reminded me of somebody who I follow on Twitter is Helen Bevan. So from a leadership development point of view, I think she is the CEO of Horizons, that's it. And she does the School of Healthcare Radicals. So there is a, uh, I think it's like an annual, it might be more frequent, but they do like an online course there. So that and I did really that many good. years yeah yeah I did that course many years ago and actually yeah that is something I would definitely recommend anyone any NHS leader and you don't have to be in a leadership position to be a leader you could be anyone it could be anyone I'd you know really recommend that book uh, not the book sorry the course yeah because it, again it's online it's accessible you can go back and they refresh it I think every year with new yeah. new learning as well so yeah I definitely recommend that course as well and then actually, last, it's not the last question. No, I hope it's the last question. There is a time factor around this stuff, but it's not, it doesn't sound, I mean, I don't think anybody in a leadership position just says, right, on Monday, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do this. And then on Tuesday, you do slot it in. But they're probably, it would be beneficial if you know, like doctors and clinicians have PLT, they have protected learning time for us non-clinical folk to adopt that because you're reading so much all of the time that you do have to implement it so you kind of do need a you kind of need to read something and not just be inspired and think oh that's good then you need to just pick a small project and tie that learning and then it just becomes what you do but I think some people fall into the trap of just you know like some people just love reading and love listening to podcasts and that is amazing. And some of it will just naturally embed and stick. But you do have to make a concerted effort to think. And I think it's helpful to think about what you're doing and then find the resources versus just reading loads of books all of the time. And then you have to read what do you need? What are you struggling with today? And then find the resources to help you with that particular problem versus just be a really amazing reader. Absolutely. And I think it, it's hard, isn't it, to juggle. I really struggle with juggling the sort of work, home, parenting life, keeping up to date with all the new policy, how we're going to implement it, how we make it manageable for our colleagues working across primary care. And I'm sure probably your listeners can relate to going through those struggles right now with, you know, with having small children, with having, you know, very challenging excessive workload and I think trying to be organized and you know setting time aside to to read and reflect on things is really important and I also I'm going to try from a work-life balance perspective to be my future friend (laughs) and spend time you know thinking about the week ahead and trying to I do try and cram in as much as I can into a day which probably um but a bit of everything, I know I try and if I get to listen to a podcast in the morning, I feel really energised starting the day. And I do try at the end of every day, just reflect on, and this goes back to, I think, my achievement strength of what I've achieved over the day and sort of tick some things off my to-do list that day. Or um, and, I, and I think as well, just reflecting back on what you said about, you know, reading and, and, sh- and, and sharing and actually acting on what you've learned. I do pass things on to my team because I want them to have, you know, the opportunities to to read things, to understand decisions we're making or the direction we're going in. So I do share quite a lot with our, with my my, my immediate team and also our primary care networks. You know, I do a weekly update for primary care networks with 
you know, contractual information, information that we're doing to support to support the networks. And often I'll I'll put in a podcast recommendation or a a blog post that's useful for them to to read that I've read and thought actually the more people that maybe read this locally, the more we might actually get some sort of common ground of actually trying it out locally as well. So I think there are different, you know, tactics you can have with trying to get people to feel inspired and to act from what they've read or learnt as well. So going back to the top of this interview and imposter syndrome, will you promote your own podcast now? (laughs) If you think think your listeners will find it uh, interesting, of course I, of course I will. You better. It's been excellent, Holly. It's been really good. And I think one of the one of the goals of the podcast is to provide that informal space for people to hear what goes on behind the scenes. And we've all done the kind of structured education and leadership development. And I love my MBA. I love the quality improvement. And I think this podcast is a really nice way of you how you bring it all together and you make it, you know, like real life and how it's supported you with your career. So definitely, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.